Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. Right, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. All right, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to Feeling It. Each week on this show, we like to share what pieces of pop culture we're really feeling, whatever show, movie, song, or tech we just can't get out of our heads. In addition to those picks, this week we'll be discussing Chloe Zhao's newest Golden Globe Award-winning film, Nomadland. But before we get started with all of that, let's introduce ourselves. And when we do, let's answer the question, if you had to leave on a road trip tomorrow, where would you head to? I'm Lucas Strategy, designer in Chicago, and I miss the beach, so I would definitely head to California, out of Chicago, probably across the north, so Wyoming, Montana, see Yellowstone National Park, all of that stuff before ending up um, in a similar place that was shown in the movie, in the Santa Cruz uh, Bay Area-ish. Yeah. I mean, I'm missing the beach as well. That's not my answer, yeah. but I feel it there. <laughs> <laughs> I am Sandra Amstutz. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm going to be cliche, and I'm going to say, say I would ha- head straight for the Grand Canyon. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm really in the, in the mood, especially after watching Nomadland, to take yeah. in the desert. and Head west. <laughs> yeah, head west, Exactly. Um, that's not always my answer, I don't think, but particularly right now, it is. Yeah. So definitely. we'll talk more about Nomadland later on in the show, but first, Lucas, I want to know what you're feeling this week. Um, I am really feeling Lupin. Lupin? Um, is that how, is it, how, is that how they say it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not going to imitate a French accent, but yes, in the show, it's pronounced Lupin. I only, get, uh, <laughs> I only do it once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a French crime drama series uh that came to netflix in january and it stars omar sai um as a we'll say gentleman thief um looking into some of the past i think injustices that have happened in his life uh this is a con man show and it has some heist elements thrown in which are very fun um but it also feels i think some there's some networky lightness that makes it feel very bingeable um, but it still it still hints at some I think interesting concepts around like race and class um, that I don't think you'd see on a normal American show. It's only six episodes long, um, and season two is coming out this summer. So it's definitely something that I would say have fun, catch up on it. It's it's very enjoyable. I have so been meaning to watch this. Like <laughs> I, I heard about it recently, and I thought, well, there couldn't be a, a show that sounds more geared toward my interests. Yeah. Uh, a gentleman thief that's the best kind and yeah i what other I, kind of thief would you want well right that's 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 the top of the tier um, yeah. <laughs> yeah i i want to watch this show i will very soon um i'm glad that you watched it and really liked it and i'm also really glad to hear that a season two is coming so soon yes 
honestly, I that's one of the reasons that I was actually going to watch it is because I heard there was going to be a season two. And I was like, okay, well, if there's going to be a season two yeah. and it's only six episodes long, I can absolutely watch this. Totally. So. Totally. How about you? What are you feeling? Right now, I am obsessed with the new HBO documentary series um, called Alan V. Farrow. It is looking into the controversy scandal of kind of our, the celebrity lifetime of um, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, their relationship and how that resulted in multiple allegations of like child abuse, molestation on Woody Allen's part. And this is something that's like very up my alley. Um, I have always, not always, I should say, definitely not always, for a long time I have been like anti Woody Allen because I believe his daughter Dylan Farrow and her allegations against him um, about him, you know, sexually abusing her as a child. And I've always kind of, yeah, railed against Woody Allen and people who defend him. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I am biased, fully biased and on board for the material of this documentary. Um, and it's a four-part docuseries. They've aired t- the first two parts, as well as HBO has, like, an accompanying podcast where the filmmakers kind of talk about how they got the interviews that they got for this um, series. And I'm just, I find it fascinating because even though I am someone that doesn't need convincing, right, this series is doing an amazing job of presenting the evidence for the case against Woody Allen. Um, And even though I am someone who kind of like, I've read Dylan Farrow's pieces where she kind of details the abuse. I've read Ronan Farrow's pieces where he kind of makes his, the legal case and the journalistic case against Woody Allen. Um, I, so I feel like I'm well versed in this story. Um, but even still, there's so much I didn't understand and know about the intricacies of how this family operated. And, um, kind of what helps this documentary series flesh out its storytelling is that Mia Farrow filmed her family constantly. She always had a home video camera and she was just constantly filming the kids playing, asking them questions. She just has this huge archive of family footage that um, includes Woody Allen because even though he tries to downplay this aspect of their relationship, he was very much a member of that family. And, um, and so it's really wild to see, um, the family dynamics between everyone. And then to hear also just a a wide berth of interviews from family friends testifying to the fact that Woody Allen was a major part of this family. And, um, testifying to the behavior that he had specifically with Dylan Farrow. Um, and yeah, it is, it is jaw dropping. Um, it's also just, I think for me, it is comforting to see, to learn about like what grooming behaviors are, you know, I, I consider myself pretty well versed in like the topic of sexual assault, but 
I, I don't have that much knowledge of what it looks like to be groomed as a child. And um, this documentary is kind of educating myself on, like, what what are the behaviors? I mean, and a lot of the behaviors I think I hope I would normally think, oh, that's odd. But to see it laid out as a pattern is, I think, very helpful. Um, mm-hmm. Lucas, do you have any interest in watching this? I don't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you would. It seems very heavy. Um, I am interested in, I think, a lot of the outcomes of stories like this. Um, but to me, to me, with with stories like this, there's a fine line between like um, investigating it and then like reveling in it as if it's a um, like a juicy, fun story for sure. everybody to be entertained by. Um, from my understanding, that's not what this documentary is at all. It yeah. truly is like an investigative view of this. So I think in general, I just do avoid them because they make me uncomfortable around the the voyeuristic nature of a lot sure. of it. Um, but I've heard really good things about it, so. Yeah, what I'm really interested in, because I think, like, this documentary, I think, is pretty damning, and I think before this documentary, a lot of people had the had the lame excuse of being like, I didn't know the extent, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, the actors that probably just don't care that much, but that want to look okay and the public eye won't have that as an excuse anymore you know that after (laughs) this documentary that that is no longer a believable excuse and they you know it'll be harder to work with him um i'm also really so one thing i wanted to point out that you said like you know trust whether this is like exploitative or or truly investigative um I, I reckon with that while I'm watching it. And and I think that this documentary series is handled mostly very well. Um, the Dylan Farrow, who, you know, is the ultimate, like, victim and survivor in all of this, right? She yeah. um, is a part, like, a, a active participant in the documentary. So they're doing this with her, you know, consent and with her, like, uh, you know... Um, her i think mental health taken into mind you know yeah um mia farrow is an active participant in this ronan farrow is an active participant a bunch of the other siblings are participating to varying degrees some are on camera doing interviews some um are participating but they don't want to be recognized so they're doing audio interviews um Mm -hmm. so that side of the family is participating woody allen and suny previn are not participating at all. So if you're looking for like both sides of the story, you're not going to really fully get it. And so far the documentary hasn't included any Woody Allen defenders. Um, I'm very interested if it will ever get to that point. I I imagine most of them would choose not to participate. I'm wondering if they were reached out to, you know, Um, if someone like Diane Keaton was reached out to, to, you know, for a comment or participating. Um, I'm also very interested in, so far, all of the content of the show has been, you know, in this very specific time period of the 80s and 90s, um, when Mia Farrow met Woody Allen, and then when, you know, kind of all this news broke. Um, And we have two more episodes to go. One episode, I'm sure, is going to be about 
the legal and publicity battle that happened in the 90s surrounding this controversy. Uh, But I'm very curious if the documentary will touch on what happened in the 2010s when Dylan Farrow kind of wrote that, I think it was in the New York Times, um, this like open letter to Hollywood saying, why do you still work with him? I'm wondering if we'll get there because that is a part of the story that I find particularly fascinating is how do people in today's world react to being called out about this, this subject matter, you know? Yeah. Um, all that to say, like when I say obsessed, I'm really obsessed. I watch it the <laughs> moment it's available. I'm listening to the, uh, the podcast. Um, I think it's riveting to watch and I really hope that other people will. I think, you know, a lot of people like yourself very understandably are like, I'm I'm not in the mood to watch a, a story about a child getting molested. And I completely respect that. Um, I will say this. I don't think it so far. It's about more of the pattern of behavior than it is the actual act, even though the actual act is discussed. And um, I, it hasn't made me like cry yet if that is at any kind of like yeah. gauge for how emotional <laughs> this show is so far yeah. um anyway highly recommend alan v farrow on hbo cool all right next we're gonna move on to our in or out section normally in this section we review movie trailers and we quickly decide whether we're in or out on them but today we're gonna talk about whether we are in or out on the Golden Globe ceremony that took place this weekend. Hello! Good evening, world! Let us explain what this even is. Uh, The Golden Globes are awards given out by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association is made up of around 90 international no-black journalists who attend movie junkets each year in search of a better life. Are you in or out? On a Zoom Golden Globes. I'm out. Oh, it's very bad. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think there are some fun things that you can do over Zoom, like getting to see people like sitting with their families and just, you know, their kids are there before they go to bed and stuff like that. Um, in general, that's not worth it for the rest of the, the three-hour show. It yeah. was uh, it was pretty pretty boring, I would say, for the most part. Um, I, I think it's... It's it's weird to try and make everything feel kind of normal um, during a pandemic like this, and I wish they'd really either leaned into. I again, this is the first awards show during the pandemic that I've watched, um, so it's not like I have a ton of it, ton to compare it to. But just like hearing kind of what happened to the Emmys and stuff like that, I just feel like you can lean more into that, and you don't have to have the same presentation style and the same order that you that you have at a normal ceremony. So it just felt very forced to me. I wish I would have seen the Emmy so that I could have it to compare this to. Yeah, this was really bad. There were a few highlights for me. Um, We can talk about highs and lows, but um, overall, I think the the pace of the show was slow and boring. Um, Because you can't do a normal show, there was no, like, fun things to break up the the speeches, you know? Yeah. There were no musical numbers. There were no... um, like yeah funny bits really there was a few but they weren't great and all and i but i think what makes the show the worst was just these celebrities the show itself and the celebrities don't understand how to do 
Zoom, <laughs> ultimately, yeah. which is really frustrating um, to watch. The show, I don't think, did a very good job of educating participants, or at least, or maybe the participants in the show didn't, you know, weren't open to education. Um, either way. There was a lot of, like, celebs when it was their turn to, like, when they won an award and they had to give a speech, like, not knowing when they could start talking, you know? Like, yeah. not knowing if they were live. Um, and then also audio. The audio was just so bad. <laughs> like, I, you know, am not a celebrity. I am <laughs> very much, you know, like, not in their – I don't have their money. And, like – I have a Yeti microphone for this podcast. And it's kind of like, you know, all of these celebs should invest in a decent microphone and not just use their laptop microphone setup <laughs> because the audio was really, really bad throughout the whole show. Yeah. It's some obvious things that's just like, why are we doing it this way? Like, just why are we leaving it up to each contestant or each uh, yeah. award, whatever, to, to, to kind of do his own setup? It, it felt very... Uh, slapdash yeah. i guess i also think just um yeah the it made me realize when i was watching it that like i was like i don't like this at all and yeah. there were there are moments that were nice but if the oscars are gonna be like this if things aren't a little bit better by the time <laughs> the oscars come around i will still watch because i can't not watch the oscars but right. i will not celebrate i think the way i normally do you know, yeah. Um, I, I, by that I mean I won't make all of my friends watch the Oscars with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What were some highs for you? I mean, starting off with a Daniel Kaluuya win um, for Judas and the Black Messiah and a John Boyega win for um, Small Axe. I thought was great. I thought that was sure. that kicked off, even with all the technical issues. <laughs> Just having right. them win for those. Uh, roles I thought was really exciting right off the bat. And then my other favorite part was um, Chadwick Boseman's wife's uh, oh. speech, just talking about, um, you know, what, what this movie meant, what kind of this time period meant to him, and um, and just, you know, how she she can't say the words that he could, and if he were here, he would have, you know, more to say. And I just thought it, it was very sad watching her just kind of like ball while giving that speech for his win. Um, yeah. but I thought it was, I'm, I'm really glad that I don't think this is something that normally would have happened of, of letting her speak <laughs> on mm. his behalf. Actually, um, I think, I feel like that is, does happen because does didn't it? that happen with Heath Ledger's when Heath Ledger got an Oscar after he died? I don't remember. I mean, uh, I don't think it was his, I don't think Heath Ledger was married, but I think it was like his sister or his mother, yeah. like accepted yeah. on his behalf. I think for me it feels different when she's just like sitting in her home talking about it as opposed Absolutely. to like going up on stage for a quick award speech. <laughs> like yeah. it just it just felt different, I yeah. think. I was sobbing during it. It was very emotional. She, you know, did an amazing job, but yeah, it was that was a lot to to take in. Um yeah. in a very beautiful way. Um and I think it's just, you know, like I think he was just pretty, I mean, obviously very beloved as a figurehead, but then also as a person. And I think, you know, I think whenever a beloved actor dies, it's very sad, but there's something different about his death. And I think the way the industry is reacting to it, you know, I mm -hmm. felt even though it was a Zoom awards show, I could feel 
like the people who are participating being emotional throughout that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. That was definitely a highlight for me. My, uh, my other highlight would have been, was Jane Fonda's speech. Um, I, I love Jane Fonda and I thought her speech was really wonderful. And, um, she's just like a really, I think, exciting role model in this industry. And yeah, so getting to see, getting to see them, I, I also love a montage during like people <laughs> are like complain about the montages at the Oscars. I'm like, no, give me more. So the Jane Fonda montage was really fun to watch. And then to see her at her age, like this amazing career she's had in her past and like the amazing work she's still doing um, was really lovely. I it's, it's exciting when we honor someone in this industry who's much older, but is still doing amazing work. You know, it's not like, Oh, let's before they die, let's give this person an award. Um, so yeah, I, it was, I loved it. Let's talk about the show as a show and like any of the comedic stuff involved in it. Um, did any of that work for you? Um, not really. I thought that Amy Poehler and Tina Fey did a good job of being in two different rooms and two different coasts and still feeling like they were somewhat in sync for the most part. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's got to be really difficult. And it didn't always exactly line up the way I think it was supposed to. But um, overall, I was really impressed by it. Yeah. I didn't feel like it was super funny or engaging. Um, it just felt – it all felt just kind of like normal and bland, I guess. Sure. I – I think like their monologue was fine. I think they're better at this than most celebrity award show hosts, you For know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so like, I've kind of soured personally on Tina Fey and Amy Poehler in recent years. Um, but as award show host, it's one of those things where it's like I much prefer this than any of like the male late night hosts doing it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. So in that sense, I'm like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, it didn't blow me away like they, like they have in past years when they have like a real energetic room to work with. Um, mm -hmm. But I was, ha I was much happier to see them than anyone else. Um, and then the, I'll just say the bit with the celebrities like asking for medical advice from medical professionals and it's like, and then they're all related <laughs> to TV shows. That really worked for me. Um, I really liked that bit. I thought it was like cheeky and fun and, and of all the ways to like, you know, lift up people in our medical community right now, that was one of my favorite that I've seen because it had like their names on the screen, which I thought was nice to be like, this is a real person. Here's their name. Here's their job. And then it also gave them a chance to like, do comedy you know and yeah. some of them were very funny and so i i enjoyed that bit to be real honest i was muted during that part because i was uh, on a phone call but <laughs> but it looked fun <laughs> yeah it was fun i wasn't like hysterical or anything yeah but it you know but i liked it it didn't make yeah. me cringe in a way that a lot of those award show bits can often make me make me cringe definitely yeah so what do we think is going to happen with Oscars, Lucas? I have absolutely no idea. Oscars are April something. We haven't even thought about it. <laughs> I know. Um, we, we, we don't have nominations yet. Um, I Honestly, I still don't think we're going to be in a better spot for the Oscars. I think they're going to do Zoom stuff. I think they will take a 
um, a hint from the Golden Globes presentation because I don't think anybody was very high on it um, no. and try and do something different. Um, I think they'll they'll learn from this. So I Who have is, hope for the. Isn't Soderbergh producing the Oscars? I think yeah. Soder Soderbergh is producing, which I think is perfect for a time yes. like this. He's very run and gun, very scrappy. Um, I think he's and and he's very uh, up to date on technology in the moment. So I think he'll be really good at figuring out exactly how to make this um, an acceptable presentation and definitely entertaining. So the Oscars are April twenty fifth. Got it. Um, and the nominations March fifteenth are March fifteenth, so they're coming up soon. Um, yep. how are you doing with that movie you're supposed to watch for the Oscar bet from last year, Lucas? <laughs> yeah, I need to. I need to get on that. Yeah, this happens every year. We wait till the oh, last minute absolutely. to actually watch it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I say you know. Uh, you'll watch it and then the when we do our oscar picks episode right before the oscars um we should i I would love to hear a little review from you and see for sure yeah absolutely okay (laughs) well let's um speaking of oscars let's talk about what i would consider as a front runner um and that is chloe jaw's film nomadland this a little bit on the pod already because we both had it in our top 10 of the year and but we 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 really wanted to give it a a full-length review because it recently came out on hulu and it's now you know widely available to everyone and um that's very exciting because oftentimes films like this that i are typically like indie darlings that have a shot at best picture um either are only in certain theaters, um, they're not available to everyone in the country, um, or they're not sometimes not even out in theaters yet. And that's always incredibly frustrating when something that's, you know, getting a lot of awards buzz isn't even available for people to see. And so I'm really excited that this is now on Hulu, that my parents can watch this movie if they want to, uh, that we can recommend it on the podcast, I, I'm just, I'm very excited about that. Um, yeah. So, Lucas, how do you feel about Nomadland? Um, still love it. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, kind of what, what we talked about during our top ten episode was just kind of like, this movie feels very um, slice of life. Um, it is just about a woman kind of packing up and going out in a van, um, getting jobs around kind of the western part of the United States, um, just kind of little random jobs just to kind of like keep herself going. But she is a nomad, and that's kind of what she's, that's the life that she's kind of chosen um, after her husband dies and kind of the town that they live in uh, kind of falls apart. But I think one of the things that just keeps surprising me about Chloe Jaw's filmmaking is that she... um, I feel like this is a movie that would end up being very political in most from most mm. filmmakers of I'm going to have an agenda. I'm going to have a there's going to be a huge socio economical you know, conversation that 
will be tied to this movie. And I think you can absolutely have that conversation around the movie, but right. I also think she does a really good job of focusing it on Fern. And this is this woman's story, and she's not trying to make it a larger you know, conversation, but just really focusing on that character. And I think what that really succeeds at is you, you get all of the feelings that you would, I think, normally supposed to feel around us, you know, a, a movie that has bigger, I think, uh, aspirations for for the for a conversation around it. Um, but it's all focused on this one woman, and so you don't have to you don't get into areas where you're generalizing for a population or anything like that. You right. live in her experience, and then you come out of it really with a mindset around, you know, what is a person like that feel in this economy that we're in now or in this. Um, environment in the united states and so i just am really impressed by that because i feel like in, in most other filmmakers you would have here's what this means for the united states and then here's the backlash against that and well this didn't you know show all of the sides of this issue and it's like that's not what she's getting at and i think it's a very fine line to walk um and she does a fantastic job of it yeah i just i agree with everything you said um this film is makes me think about a population of people and a type of person, not just a specific like population, but a type of person that I often don't spend my days thinking about. And I really applaud it for that because it, it made me so emotional um, to think about, and, I, and when I say a population of people, I really mean um, the what I would consider the elderly, you know, um, yeah. or, or the, the older, it kind of, there's a, a range of ages, right. That's represented in this film. But mm-hmm. a lot of the main characters are people, um, in like a retirement age of their lives. And it, it reminded me of so many people that I grew up with, even though the people I grew up with were not nomads. They were not people who lived in vans and traveled across the West. Um, but the mannerisms and the caring and the community just reminded me of so many like old ladies I grew up going to church with and the mannerisms that they all had. And it made me miss just kind of their warmth and their caring. I think what I love about this movie is it shows just like the tenderness of people in that age. And oftentimes, I think we don't get a lot of films dedicated to that tenderness. If, you know, if you have people who are older, they're like, you know, one member of a family, right? Of, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're the grandparents that are sticking around. Um, or, it, or it's a real devastating look at, like, the devastating effects of age, right? The, you know, yeah. Alzheimer's or... Um, you know, some illness and you're, you're in for a a movie that's just about like, wow, aging, you know, death and aging is hard. Um, and this movie is like about living throughout those ages. Um, and that's really, really beautiful to me. Um, also I think you've mentioned this, but I just want to mention it again. Chloe Jaw as a director is just she blows me away with one half of her directing is visual and how stunning she can like paint a picture of America. Right. She paints Mm -hmm. these landscapes using, you know, film that are 
gorgeous to look at and meditative. And, you know, I think she's been compared to, like, Terrence Malick in a, in a lot of ways and the way that she, like, shoots her her scenes. And um, so that – so visually I'm moved because she, like yeah. – <laughs> she, She's not afraid of a wide open shot, right? And that's yeah. it's so wonderful to see. And then from an acting and storytelling perspective, um, she works with a lot of amateur actors and – the performances that she can pull out of them are remarkable. They, yeah. and, and it's always unclear to me, like how much is scripted and how much isn't, how much is like her um, giving a script to an actor or how much of it is she saying like, you know, I want you to talk about this and pretend this, or just tell me an actual story from your life, you know? And that jumble of intentions, um, makes for really compelling storytelling. I, you know, Frances McDormand is the lead actor in this movie. And, but her and David Strathern are the only two, um, like name, like names that I know from this cast, you know, like a list kind of actors. And they are matched toe for toe in performances by everyone else in the film. Um, I mean, Frances McDormand stands out because every moment she's on screen, I just am riveted by every little facial expression and vocal choice she makes. She makes, yeah. <laughs> she she gives a performance that feels so fully realized. Um, but yeah, the way that Cloujac can use, I, I, I hate the term, but I'm going to use it, real people to tell a fictional story. Um, I, I'm in awe of it. And I... I want to learn all of her secrets. I want to learn yeah. how she w- like weaves this tale and how she brings out these performances in people. I am always, I want to see like behind the scenes of her, like talking to a lot of these people. Yes. I think so in, in this movie, obviously most of her um, besides the two that you mentioned, most of her cast are real life nomads, uh, people kind of living in vans traveling around the United States um, and she doesn't use that for any kind of um, – it doesn't feel explo- exploitive no. um, in like, oh, I'm going to cast you because you're the real person or whatever, and I can, you know, it's it's going to feel more natural. Like, she does it because, it, you know, it is – they have stories and things it, that they can bring to the movie that are – that you can't authentic. get from anyone else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so – It also doesn't feel voyeuristic either. It doesn't yes. feel like – Ooh, look at this this footage that I've been able to capture that no one else has. You know, yeah, it feels exactly. like it does feel like the people in this film are full participants in it. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I think that's like some of the most beautiful moments of this movie are things f- like said by some of these people or like mindsets that you I feel like would have a hard time writing. <laughs> If yeah. you're not, you know, living this life. And so I, I just thought it was absolutely like a beautiful portrait, but also like I learned a ton. <laughs> I learned yeah. so much um, about, you know, this lifestyle and kind of the people involved in it. And I, I really appreciated it a lot. Yeah. And I think uh, there are certain moments, I think the the one criticism I'll have, and it's incredibly minor is that some of the dialogue seems like you can feel like, okay, I want us to lead into this topic. So I want you to say this line, you know, and like, I can feel that in some of 
in some of the lines. But then it's balanced out with, like you mentioned, people telling stories that feel incredibly authentic to them. And because of that, I think if someone tried to write those stories down from an outsider's perspective, that's where, like, cliché comes into place. And you don't feel that in this film. I'm particularly thinking about, like, there's a campfire scene. And uh, this, I guess, I I should just say before I say this, this isn't a movie you could really spoil, I don't think. (laughs) Um, So I feel comfortable kind of just talking about what's in the film. Um, Yeah. Just for anyone who cares. Um, There's a campfire scene where, where nomads are talking about, you know, wanting to get out and travel and see the world and live before they die. They don't want to die having worked all their lives without getting this period to enjoy it, you know? And they're all telling different stories relating to that theme. And I think, yeah, a screenwriter that, you know, has no experience in this world would write something very cheesy for that scene. And... That scene felt anything but cheesy to me. It felt yeah. really raw. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a perfect example of, like, how her genius works. Um, Definitely. I also want to talk about a, a personal, like, emotional response I had to this film. You know, I was mentioning earlier, a lot of films don't look at people in this age group. Um, but particularly... Very few films look at what it looks like to be in this age and be solitary. To see the Fern character and then many other people, that they're making their way through this world technically alone. You know, they have, there's, they definitely have friends and they definitely build community. So they're not, you know, loners. They're not completely solitary. They don't have a completely solitary existence. But they are, they don't, travel with anyone they are taking care of themselves they're taking care of their their van and their homes themselves and their days are spent answering only to themselves and um as a single non-married person it is scary but also like emotionally fulfilling to see like what that future could look like for me you know and yeah, to see, like, is this what's ahead of me? Do I want this kind of existence? Not necessarily a nomad existence, but a a solitary one. And it is really important, I think, for that kind of perspective to be shown in stories and not just, you know, what does it look like to grow old with your partner and possibly lose them? Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I think... I think for her, it uh, was interesting to see that, like, because, I mean, this isn't a spoiler, because her her husband has died before the start of this movie. Right. Um, But just, like, as she not struggles with the loss of her husband, because that's not what it is. It's more about her, like, learning to live alone. And what is it like to be, you know, on your own in this environment and everything like that. And um, I feel like a lot of times, like, when she'll talk about her husband in this movie and everything like that, it's a lot of... A lot of her, I guess, learning how to um, move into a period of her life where she is making memories on her own and doing Mm -hmm. things that are fun and exciting and letting herself do that without him, I think, is something that um, 
I found really beautiful and, and was was very interesting. And it's an interesting side of that solitude, the kind of that you're talking about that I, I hadn't really seen before. Yeah. There's also like a lot of films that I've loved this year and, you know, media that I'm consuming is about grief. But what I like about the way that this movie handles grief is this is about someone who's processing their grief, I think, through trying to be productive, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. instead of just like wall, not not that I I this has a negative connotation. I don't think wallowing in grief is bad. Actually, I think that that's often a necessary part of grieving for people. But that's not what she's doing. She's not sobbing in her van. She's not you know wistfully looking at photos of him all the time. You know, this is someone who is grieving, and the way she's processing it is through keeping moving. Um not standing still. And that is a look at grief that I think is probably very relevant to a lot of people. And yeah. And I'm really interested in stories about how we as humans manage grief right now. And um, I thought that this was a beautiful one. So I will just say right off the bat that I think Nomadland is my pick for Best Picture. I mean, it's my personal what I hope to win Best Picture this year. Um, And it's exciting for me that, like, not only do I think the film I want to win Best Picture that could win Best Picture is an excellent film from a filmmaking perspective, but that is also, like, so deeply relevant to, like, an American modern-day current perspective. Um... And, yeah. and is a human story at, at the heart of it all. From an awards perspective, I think this is the front runner, um, which I'm really excited about. For me, as far as movies that could get nominated for, <laughs> for the Oscars, I do feel like um, I would be excited to see Sound of Metal up there. Yeah. To me, that, that, that doesn't feel like a front runner at all. Um, it feels like Nomadland, and I would be very excited for Nomadland to win Best Picture. Yeah. Yeah, I I really liked Chicago, Trial of Chicago 7. I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan. I like that mm-hmm. movie. Um, I think that movie is going to be get a lot of Oscar buzz because it is like, that is a classic Oscar movie. It's a movie and, movie. Yeah. And I'm not mad about that, but I don't want it to win everything. And especially I don't want it to win Best Picture over Nomadland, which is like cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, have you did you see the writer? I can't remember Chloe Shaw's previous I did. film. Yeah, yeah. That so I wanted to talk really quickly before we sign off about that film compared to this film because that film a lot of people, especially like you know film people, love and praise. And I also really liked it. I I'm, I don't have anything negative to say about it, but I think it's really interesting to compare the two that with this film. Um, I mostly just think, like, it's interesting that there's so much in common. Like, you can see her style and her storytelling style, Mm -hmm. like, of course, in both films. But to see the scale that she's getting to work with (laughs) now is really, really exciting to me. It definitely feels like an evolution in filmmaking. Like, it feels like she's, like, based off the work that she did with the writer, it it is it able it it allows her to work at a bigger scale a bigger budget all of this stuff um i really enjoy the the writer a lot and i think a lot of the kind of the conversation that it has around um 
around profession and like, uh, you know, what you want to do with your life, passion, masculinity, all of that stuff mm-hmm. to me was really interesting in that movie. Um, but it felt like an, it felt like an indie movie. It felt like a small, a small film. Local. Whereas this, yeah, exactly. Um, whereas this really feels like an American film, like, like looking at the expanse of America and the travel that kind of goes on there and a bunch of different people. And so I, I don't know if I can compare them in a, in a, which one do I like more, but in a, no. um, in an escalation standpoint, I feel right. like <laughs> this is just an amazing, an amazing achievement. And I am, I'm excited to see her Marvel movie. And yet I can't, those are two worlds that I don't see merging at all. Is like the, the, you know, the clinical clean Marvel aesthetic and her just kind of, uh, a little rough and natural, um, right style that she's she's worked with here so i'm i'm excited for that um i'm excited to see her work with angelina jolie that sounds like an amazing pairing to me um (laughs) but it just it just hasn't meshed in my brain yet so i'm very excited to see the eternals when it finally uh when we finally get to see that yeah to see like her progression be from i mean the writer wasn't her first film but it's the first film of hers that i saw so this like Set in, like, a very, very small rural town about one boy and his family to progress to Nomadland, which is starring Frances McDormand, who is, like, an Oscar-winning, like, iconic actress, and then, and be about, kind of, set in the American West and be, and as grand as the American West looks to really, like, cover that right Mm -hmm. and now she's going to space and so (laughs) and so to to be in space quote unquote um and the marvel universe it's fascinating um i just think uh, when i was talking about comparing you know the writer in nomadland i also think i i don't want to criticize the writer because i'm not but it is a markedly different experience for me to watch that film versus a film that is helmed by a leading performer like Francis McDormand. Um, yeah. Because there's an authenticity, an incredible authenticity that takes place in the writer, right? Um, yes. But Francis McDormand is a performer that, one, is riveting, but two, that I as a viewer trust, you know? Not that mm-hmm. I trust, not that I think she plays trustworthy characters, but I trust her ability to carry this film. And as I'm watching it, I I feel settled in that, you know? And I really kind of loved the balance of this acclaimed performer with all of these amateur performers like she's used to kind of including, right? And yeah. I thought that the balance of those two was really like, right on the money like that's what i want from chloe Zhao moving forward like more of this right um Mm -hmm. so now she's doing an mcu film and ultimately i'm excited because i like the marvel movies i like participating in the dorkiness of the mcu and i think it's exciting that there's a possibility that one of these films could be like innovative and cinematic and not just a popcorn flick right um definitely i think i'm nervous whether that'll actually happen or not um and i think when we see eternals 
we're all going to be able to like kind of have the answer. Will Marvel let a filmmaker that we know is capable of greatness. So like she's proven herself, you know, if, if Eternals is bad, I don't blame Chloe Zhao. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I just don't, <laughs> you know, I think she's proven herself to be like really magnificent, especially if she wins. I mean, personally, I'll still feel this, but if she wins best picture and best director, it's mm-hmm. going to be really hard to blame a Marvel movie on her, a bad Marvel movie on her yeah. capabilities. Right. Um, yeah. And so if Eternals isn't, doesn't live up to this hype and this standard, then that will kind of answer the question whether Marvel will allow a filmmaker to, like, let their film be what they want, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've seen Marvel work with indie filmmakers who, like, make their first movie and then move on to a Marvel movie in the past. I think this is a little different because... It's totally different. This is like, she, yes, she has been an indie filmmaker, but like she has, she now has a brand. She now has a, st- a set style that she has sh- continued to show. <laughs> yeah. And this is where we get to see if they'll allow that to play through or if it's just, she's a front hey, come runner in and for a best director for this. Oscar. Yes. Like that is exactly. a difference, yeah. you know, from yeah. someone who shot one indie and is now getting an action film. Like, exactly. Um, and so. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fascinated. Uh, from what I've heard, she kind of put her foot down and saying like m- how most Marvel films are shot in Atlanta. She was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're gonna travel. Yeah. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna go around the world and and shoot in real locations. Um, so that is encouraging. I think the cast is really encouraging. I think I'm really excited by all the people in Eternals. Yeah, we'll see. I. It's it's really kind of I don't think we've ever been in this space before with a director or with a Marvel film. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to see where it leads. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to probably keep talking about Nomadland and Chloe Zhao as, you know, Oscar season comes around. But I'm really excited for her for winning Golden Globe Best Director. First woman since Barbara Streisand directed one directing award for Yentl. Wow. So I know. So very excited that she won that. Excited that Nomadland won Best Picture. I hope to see like more of that come Oscar season. Me too. All right. Is there anything else we want to say before we wrap up? I don't think so. Okay. Um, where can people find you online? You can find me everywhere at Lucas and Stuff. And you can find me on all social media platforms at Sandra Amstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye, Nick. Goodbye. Go away, Rick. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it. Go home. Yep. Yeah. Moving along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people. <laughs> <laughs>